Hello everyone and welcome back to The Forge. Today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3 verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15 through 18. And I've entitled this, God's Promise is for Keeps. And we're going to be talking today about the doctrine of justification. R.C. Sproul says that it has been called the storm center of the Reformation. And for Paul, it was the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this whole idea of justification by faith. In fact, if you started at Galatians 2, verse 15, you would carry that theme all the way through chapter 5, verse 1, and you learn how this concept shaped Paul's message. So the subject of justification by faith, it was believed by many others in the New Testament. All of the apostles agreed on this. What we're talking about today is really uh, the apostles' doctrine. But it is most often Paul who we quote whenever we seek to defend this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith. So what is justification? Again, I've said this before, but um, it bears repeating. Justification is God's act of pardoning sinners and accepting them as righteous for Christ's sake. When God justifies someone, he permanently puts right their relationship with himself. And in case you're wondering, I'm getting this from R.C. Sproul. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And really, this is the foundation for our acceptance by God. So with that said, let us read the words of the living God. Galatians 3.15-18 Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of so many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The first thing I want to talk about today is God's unchangeable covenant. God's unchangeable covenant. You know, we've seen thus far in the book of Galatians that Paul takes kind of a harsh tone, and just when you think he's being harsh, it gets even a little more harsh. But here the tone softens up. Excuse me. So while the subject remains the same, which is going to be justification by faith, Paul begins a new train of thought, and it's a little bit softer in tone. He reminds us that God promised saving blessings to the nations through Abraham. And Paul makes it clear that when God spoke with Abraham about Abraham's offspring, it was Christ that was in view. Paul is really telling us here that Christ is the singular offspring of Abraham. 
and we're going to develop this a little bit more as we move on. History shows us that a great nation came from Abraham, and we all know that nation today is a nation of Israel. This nation's purpose was to, number one, be a light to the Gentiles. Number two, preserve the word of God, which we now recognize as the Old Testament, but it is the word of God. And to bring forth the Savior. In other words, the Savior of the world, the Lamb who uh, takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, he would come from the nation of Israel. He would come from Abraham and his human nature. But the covenant promise that God made to Abraham was not canceled by a later covenant of the law that came through Moses. And that's what Paul is bringing out here. So let's take a look at it a little bit deeper. Paul begins by talking about a covenant made between men. And a covenant was a bloody affair. Animals would be split in two, and each half is placed on either side of a pathway. And two men entering into the covenant would hold hands and they would go down the middle of these split animals. And they were saying, if I break my word to you, may what we did to these animals be done to me. In other words, it's a little more than I'm in breach of contract. The sentence of breaking the covenant is death. And Paul makes a point here that once both parties enter into that kind of a contract or a covenant that it cannot be changed, it cannot be added to it, you cannot annul it. And there's a use here of a word, confirmed. Paul says that the covenant is confirmed, and it's a perfect passive participle. And it means to ratify, to make valid, to put it in a state of completion. In other words, Paul is saying that even covenants that are entered into by mere human beings cannot be undone because it is complete, it is sealed, it is finished, it is completely ratified. So in verse 16, Paul transitions to a covenant made with Abraham by God. And he defined what a covenant is, or he kind of takes it for granted, really, that his audience knows what a covenant is. And now he's going to show us how these concepts apply in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 15 records the covenant made between God and Abraham. But there is an extremely important exception that happens here in the Abrahamic covenant. And that is that God alone passes through the middle of these split animals. I want to read to you from Genesis 15, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, and then I'm going to skip down to verses 17 and 18. But before I do, I want to set this up for you. Abraham's name at this time in history is Abram. Later, God changes it from Abram to Abraham. And God takes Abram out, and the long story short is God promises Abram, I'm going to give you all this land that you see. And so we pick it up here in Genesis 15, starting at verse 8, and he, Abram, said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? 
So he, this is God now, God said to Abram, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then Abram brought all these to God and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the two pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or I'm sorry, with Abram. So God shows up to Abram here in the form of this oven or a fire pot, pot and depending on which translation you're using, uh, there's different words that are used for this oven that went through the middle of this covenant ceremony. And it is significant because these two things belong together in a nomadic lifestyle, which is what Abram was leading at this point. They would carry their fire from one camp to another. They did not have lighter fluid and matches and things like that. So they made fire the old-fashioned way, and it was a lot easier to carry the coals from the previous night's camp to your next camp as you're following your cattle around as they're grazing in different places. And so there's a reason that God showed up this way. He is communicating something to Abram. Number one, he's saying, I, God, will be with you as you travel, Abram. Figuratively speaking, I'm going to be the fire in your camp. I'm going to be the one who takes care of you. I'm going to be your supply. And number two, God was saying, I will be split in two in order to restore this covenant that I am making with you if it is broken. And it's significant because Abram didn't walk down the middle of that, uh, those sacrificed animals. God did. God alone did. And we call this the Abrahamic covenant. It's unilateral. It's airtight. It's unchangeable. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that any covenant that comes later, for example, the covenant that God makes with Moses where he gives the law, don't make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, now there's a covenant in place, a new covenant under Moses, and it does away with the Abrahamic covenant. No. How that cannot be. <laughs> it's not a plan B in case plan A doesn't work out. No, the covenant that God made with Moses, which does give us the law, and um, you know, as Gentile believers, we tend to think of the law as the Ten Commandments, and that certainly is a part of it, but there's much more to the law than Ten Commandments. Uh, there were, were um, you know, property laws. Uh, animal husbandry laws, how you execute crime, um, just how you restore, if you're a thief, how it's restored. Um, all kinds of things are in the law of God. And so a lot of times people look at that Mosaic covenant and they make a mistake. And, they, and this is exactly what was happening here in Galatians the Judaizers were coming in and they were saying, you've got to keep the law because the law is the covenant that we keep. 
But the law that God gave with Moses or to Moses, it didn't amend Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. It did not annul it. It did not do away with it. It didn't really affect it in any way. If it did, and if the Israelites were supposed to earn their salvation by keeping the law, which again was a later covenant, then God would have been canceling his own promises. And I hope you can see that. And we know that God is not unfaithful. We know that God is not a liar. Numbers 23, 19 and Romans chapter 3, verse 4, they tell us three things about God that are relevant here. Number one, God is not a man. Number two, God does not lie. And number three, every word of God is true. And Abraham eventually learned to fully trust in God's promises by faith. How do I know that? Hebrews 11. Both Moses and Abraham, you can read about them in Hebrews 11, and it will say, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, and on it goes. We have to do the same thing today. God made an oath to Abraham that he, uh, and he will not break that oath. And and God's promise is even true for us today. God is saying to us today, trust in me with all of your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, and I will be with you. Can you not see how I have kept my word to you? I have sent my son for you. Which raises the question, well, who is this son? Point number two the offspring of the covenant. Now I'm going to use the words offspring and seed interchangeably here, but I want you to think about the truth of God's promise. Think about what is in view when we look at verse 16. Paul's argument is that Jesus Christ embodies, if you will, the complete culmination of the Abrahamic promise. He is the offspring through whom the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessings came. Verse 16 tells us in our text, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. See, Paul is clearing it up for us, making us realize that Christ is the seed of Abraham. And not only Paul, but all of the apostles. All of the apostles understood that Christ was the focus of the entire Old Testament. I encourage you to go read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Acts 26, verses 22 and 23. And there you will find that everyone in the, the, the apostles, that is, they understood who Jesus was. They understood that when they saw Jesus, and you know John says, that which we have heard and seen and our hands have handled the very word of life, came down and took on flesh. He was 100% God, 
yet 100% human. They knew that when they looked in the face of Jesus, they were looking into the face of God. Paul's simply telling us something here, which they already believed as those first Christians. Paul told us back in verses 7 and 14 here in, uh, in Galatians, that we have become children of Abraham if we have the faith of Abraham. Paul is saying that it is not the biological offspring of Abraham, the nation of Israel, that is not the key to unlocking God's promises. He is saying that this offspring, the offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus. He is the key to God's promises. And it's so clear that these promises apply to both Jew and Gentile. And as we move on through the text, if you read the entire book of Galatians, it's going to become even more clear to you. Those who are of this offspring, Jesus, these are the ones who inherit the promises. So here again is just another reason that the Lord's church is the Lord's Israel. Israel. I want to talk to you for just a minute about the meaning of words. Anytime you see E-L at the end of a name or a word in the Old Testament, research that word. It is telling you something about God. Emmanuel. Samuel, Daniel, and on it goes. Look at those words and look them up, and it's really as simple as a Google search. You don't have to be a uh, biblical scholar to find these things. Um, in today's world, it's so easy to find this information. Israel literally means to be governed by God. So, who is governed by God today, friends? The church. Who is the head of the church? Christ. Who is the king of Israel? Christ. Where does Christ sit today? He sits on the throne at God's right hand. And what is he doing there, friends? Well, he's interceding, interceding and he is ruling, and he is reigning you see, friends, what I'm getting at here is Abraham's spiritual descendants, not the physical ones, but the spiritual descendants. These are the ones who are the true heirs, and Paul couldn't be more clear about it. And for so many years in my own Christian walk, I did not understand this. And it's no wonder that the Judaizers wanted to keep the law as a means to salvation because I want you to imagine Paul giving this message to a Jewish audience. Okay? And I'm just going to kind of play the part of the Jewish Christian here in this setting. So, Paul, let me get this straight. I just want to make sure I understand, Paul. You're telling me that these pagan idolatrous, uncircumcised, lawless, ignorant outsiders, they don't even have the law of God, that they should be Abraham's heirs? Hold on a second, Paul. I am a Jew. I am directly from the seed of Abraham. 
okay? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I have been a faithful Hebrew my entire life. And you're telling me that these Gentiles, that all they have to do is come to Jesus in faith and that God is going to justify them? Is that what you're telling me, Paul? Well, let's look at verse 17. And Paul says, And this I say. Friends, that's like if you and I were talking and you said, I really mean it. I really mean what I'm about to say. You need to listen up. It's emphatic here. And Paul tells us that there was a covenant which was confirmed by God and it cannot be undone. And where does Paul get this number, 430 years? He says, Paul says, listen, The Abrahamic covenant was in place 430 years before God gave Moses the law. Read Exodus 12, verse 40, and you will see that the prophecy of Israel's enslavement has come true. Now remember, God told Abraham that his descendants were going to serve another nation for 400 years. And this is how long Israel was a slave in Egypt. Paul is pointing out that four centuries passed before Israel had the law. Now, as a cross-reference, go read Genesis 15, 13. Go read Acts chapter 7, verse 6. The point that I'm making here is the same point that Paul was making. Faith was in place before the law. Faith was in place before the law. In Genesis 21, 12, Sarah tells Abraham to send Ishmael away. Now, if you don't know the story there, go back and listen to my um, podcast, the episodes on Genesis. Uh, We go through Genesis verse by verse, just like we're doing here in Galatians, Galatians, and you will find out that Abraham and Sarah sort of had this idea of how they were going to help God out and um, because God had promised Abraham a son. And so um, Abraham has relations with Hagar, or Hagar, who is Sarah's slave girl, and Ishmael is a product of that. But Ishmael is not the one that God chose. God told Abraham and Sarah, that it would be their offspring. So God tells Abraham, he says, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed will be called. Well, who is Isaac? He is the son of promise. He is the one who came from Sarah and Abraham, not Hagar and Abraham. So here we see, what's the point of that, James? Why are you bringing it up? Because here we see that offspring is being narrowed down to a single son. The promise to Abraham lies with Isaac, not Ishmael. It lies with Jacob, not Esau. And Jacob's name later becomes Israel. The narrowing down continues until it lands upon King David, not Saul, it'll be David, and continuing on all the way down to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of promise. You see, the promise is fulfilled through a lineage of faith and not the flesh. 
Jesus is the named offspring, and he blows open the Abrahamic promise to all the nations. And it's not through genealogy. It is through Christ, through Christology, if you will. Now, we see the promise today in the proper light. God's intention was not simply to give Abraham and his descendants some land and more children. That wasn't it. It was to give salvation to the nations through his son. If blessing came through faith before the law, and if it was through faith that the nations were to be blessed, how could the law given to Moses annul God's promise to Abraham? And this is the point. It could not. It could not. That's why we call it faith. That's why we call it grace. All right, great, James. How is the gospel related to the law? How is it related? Because obviously we have the law. It's in the Bible. It is God's word. So what are you going to do with it? Well, it's because these covenants are compatible. Abraham and Moses go together. God doesn't make different rules for different points in history. He has one story to tell in which both the covenant of Abraham and Moses have a place. It's not one or the other. The two are in harmony. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 through 11, God says to Moses, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvelous marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Friends, Remember how I told you that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentile nations were supposed to look at Israel and look at the awesome thing that God does. Well, what is that awesome thing? It is the law of God. It is justice. It is peace in the land. It is true, honest justice using even scales. It is judges making the right choices, not being persuaded by bribery and all the rest. The Gentiles were supposed to look and marvel at the law of God and at a nation where the one true and living God was their king. No other king but their God. And here in this covenant that God makes with Moses, he is still setting out what he is going to do. He's not setting up an arrangement. He's not saying, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. It's not a quid pro quo type of thing. God's promise has no strings attached, and that's what makes it grace. That's what makes it good news. If strings were attached, then you and I would be able to claim justice. We would be able to say things like, 
Lord, I did this for you, so where's my reward? Give me justice. Give me what I have earned. And as a defense of God's election of the saved, I have said before in this podcast, and I've said it in the pulpit where I preach, and I borrowed this from Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries, grace cannot be demanded. And this is what I mean, what we're talking about right here. This is where I get it from. You and I are in no position to tell God that he's not being fair. We are in no position to demand that he must give unmerited favor to everyone at all times and all places. We don't have a right to do that. If you demand of God, it's not grace. Grace is a free gift. God gives it as he wills. You and I don't want justice. You don't want to come to God and say, hey, I did this, where's my reward? If God gave us justice, we would all be in hell. Hell is justice. Christ is grace. If you make demands upon God, you're asking for his justice. You're not asking for grace. And so Moses received God's promises in the same way that Abraham did, by faith. The difference between receiving by faith and earning by merit, it is so clear when you read the story of Moses and the Exodus. It is clear when you read the story of Abraham and Isaac. So pay attention when you go through the book of Exodus. Who knows, maybe we'll go through the book of Exodus next just to clarify the things that I'm talking about here. There's nothing in Moses that lets us think that he had it all together. He was a fugitive, a murderer. He had a bad temper. He spends 40 years in exile outside of Egypt. He's following sheep around in the desert for 40 years. He almost gets to the point where he's weak enough that God can use him. And then when God calls him, uh, Moses gives him every excuse he can to not do what God has called him to do. He tries to point out his inadequacies, that he can't talk. And we know that Moses did not even go into the promised land as a consequence of his bad temper. Abraham, Abraham was a liar. He didn't protect his wife. Go back and, and listen to our study in Genesis. And yet, both Moses and Abraham were justified by faith. Their stories cannot be read any other way. And I want you to think about something, friends. Remember, Paul tells us here in our text that it was 430 years from the promise of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, all the way up to the time of Moses and Moses receiving the law. What happened to all of those Israelites for that 400-year period that did not have the law? What did they have? Those who believed had nothing except the God of Abraham. We know that our father Abraham, that God came to Abraham, made a covenant, and I am part of that covenant. That's all we know. And we know that there is a, a promise of blessing that's coming to us. We know that there is a promise of salvation 
because for 400 years they had been slaves in Egypt. I want you to notice this. If there were any Old Testament saints during that 400-year period, and there certainly were, how did they get saved? The same way that we get saved now. They believed God. They believed in the promises of God, that God was going to send a Savior. They were looking forward to a day of redemption where you and I can look backward in time and see the cross. They were looking forward to a time that had yet to happen. So, Rather than replacing God's promises to Abraham, the Mosaic Covenant portrays faith in a new situation. What's going on is Israel begins to grow from a family into a nation during those 400 years. And the Law of Moses was only given after they were redeemed from Egypt. Do you see that? Why is that significant? Because we see Israel's bondage in Egypt as a picture of our bondage to sin. We see Moses as a type of Christ being the mediator between God and God's people. We see Christ as the mediator between God the Father and his people who are now the church. We should notice also that the giving of the law did not happen until after the Passover lamb. Why? Because the blood of the Passover lamb had to cover the household of God. Today, the church is the household of God, and the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the lamb of God does more than cover the house hold of God. It washes away our sins as if they never happened. John Piper puts it this way, quote, the law is a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant applied to a new stage of redemptive history. It is not an alteration. In both covenants, the way to obtain blessing from God is to trust God for his grace, and that is a life of faith. In both covenants, the faith which saves so taps into the power of God that it obeys. End quote. Now, this word obey, now that is a word that the Judaizers could really get into. They could enforce that. They were saying that's what we've been saying all along. Obey. You've got to obey the law of God. But you see, they miss Paul's point here. What is, what is Paul's point? Faith is obedience. Faith is obedience. Why? Because it leads to a dependency upon God. If you've got faith, then you are dependent upon God. Obedi obedience is the faith to walk a road where you don't see the end. I have people in my church who are in this position right now, walking by faith. They have needs, physical needs, financial needs. They need work. They need jobs. They have other physical things going on. And there are, the list is long. Let me just put it that way. 
faith is Abraham responding to God's command when God said, go. Abraham says, where are we going, Lord? God says, you're just going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. Pack your things and go. It's Moses dying to his own attempts at delivering his people, which resulted in murder and Moses becoming a fugitive. It's dying to his excuses as he tried to tell God about how inadequate he was, stepping out in faith and doing what God told him to do. It's David trusting in God for forgiveness in the face of his own lust, murder, conspiracy, and adultery. It's you and me fleeing to God and mercy when we face our own sins. And from this place of faith, we love, we love God because he first loved us. Do you see that? And this is where the true works of the law come from. Love is what the law is all about. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 20, uh, 37 through 40. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. I encourage you to go read 1 John chapter 4 to learn more about the law of love. Genuine faith is going to produce love. In James 2.18, he says, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, we've talked about this before. We went through the book of James. And we're not talking about working for our, working for our salvation, but what we are talking about here is an alive faith that will produce good works, works of love. True faith will turn away from a self-centered approach to life, being inward, inwardly directed all about me, and it will walk God's road. And friends, you will walk God's road even when it's difficult. You cannot obey God without trusting Him. And if you trust Him, that faith, not only is it going to be leading you to obedience, it's going to be leading you to love. Paul says in Romans 14, 23, anything that does not proceed from faith, therefore, is sin. Do you see this, friends? Justification by faith. It is so important to who we are as Christians. So you ask, well, okay, what if I stumble? What if I break the law? What if I say something I shouldn't say? What if I do something I shouldn't do? What if I flat out sin against God? Here's the good news, friends. The gospel is still there. Christ is still there. He did not go anywhere. And we're still justified before the Father because of Christ. Christ is our obedience. Galatians 2, 
20 through 21. Again, we've already covered this. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who liveth in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Friends, I hope you can see this. The covenant that God made with Abraham is secure. It's not annulled by the law. It's not messed up by our sin. God's faithfulness. I love this. This is a quote from another book. God's faithfulness exceeds your greatest strength and it overcomes your greatest weakness. Your greatest weakness. The promise is for keeps. The law doesn't annul justification by faith. Justification is entirely anchored in Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, I hope that you have found encouragement here from Paul today. He has reminded us that God's covenant promise to Abraham will be in place forever. It cannot be annulled by the giving of the law. And this is so important. It is in place forever because its fulfillment is in Christ who lives and rules from David's throne right now at the right hand of God. The last thing Jesus said before his ascension was all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do not be fooled into thinking that Jesus does not rule and reign right now. And there is a doctrine out there, and I used to believe it with all my heart. I used to study it, defend it, teach it. And I would have taught you that Jesus is going to rule at some point in the future. Well, he is going to rule in the future, but he's also ruling and reigning right now. I'm not waiting, friends, for a rapture that is not going to happen and a great tribulation that is unscriptural and a following millennial reign. No, friends, Jesus is ruling right now. Now is the time of the kingdom. Why do you say that, James? I say it because all authority has been given to Jesus. And on that basis, he has charged us to go out into the world and make disciples. We're not to make friends. You know, I listened to uh, another podcast. I listened to Jeff Durbin. And one of the things they say on, on his show is, you know, Jesus did not say to go make brosus. <laughs> he didn't say to, to go make homies. No, he said, go make disciples. And it's, it's just amazing whenever you see the scripture this way, friends. So Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, even if, in your opinion, it doesn't look like it sometimes. He's still on the throne. It's called faith, friends. 
And the point is this, your justification is eternally assured, safeguarded by God Almighty, sworn on the blood of his Son, sealed with the Spirit as the pledge of your inheritance. Your anchor is in heaven, it's not on earth. It's in the life of the triune God. Christ is still there, and the promise is for keeps. I'm going to put these references into the show notes, but I do want to recommend a book that largely influenced me. It is called Life in Liberty, The Spiritual Message of Galatians. It was printed in 2015. Its authors are uh, Daniel Bush and uh, uh, Noel Du, D-U-E, and um, it's just a really good study of the book of Galatians, and, and I got a lot of what I said here today from that book. So with that said, friends, think about it. You're justified by faith in Christ, and that's why we say in Christ alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen. There's one thing that I do